Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the CEO of Neo Insulation, Justin Mecklenburg. One of the most consistent lessons we've learned on this podcast is this, find your niche and get really, really good at it. Justin brought with him years of experience in finance when he signed on to Neo Insulation in 2015. By this point, the insulation industry had seemed to have stagnated, and Justin decided to put the company's resources in developing not just new innovative applications, but also building up a robust team. Neo Insulation quickly made a name for itself in the Kingfisher area, but its continued insistence to push the industry to new levels has gotten its attention from across the globe. Now, Neo Insulation is an expert at providing services to the midstream insulation market, earning it a listing on the Inc. 5000 and poised for ever greater success over the next few years. Neo Insulation is growing like crazy. So, Justin, let's get into it, my friend. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for asking me. I look forward to this. Absolutely. So how I always start is that was our take on your origin story and what we could gather from online. But in your own words, how did you get into this business? Well, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting story. Um, prior to the insulation business, I was um, in another oil and gas company uh, that was growing very, very rapidly. Um, I was the chief financial officer of that company, and we were right in the midst of trying to sell that company to a publicly traded company. Um, I was working, no joke, 16, 18 hours a day uh, trying to put the package together and get this sold to the publicly traded company. So I was just exhausted. I was just worn out. Sure. And I ended up getting a phone call from a cousin of mine. Uh, My cousin was, she was about 24 years old at the time. She was married uh, to a third generation roustabout, just an oil field guy, third generation. And she said, hey, we've come up with this idea that we think could go somewhere, but we need your help. We don't know how to run a business. We don't have any money. You know, we're just all we have is the idea. And um, I'll tell you, Drew, I initially just put her off. I said, hey, I'm too busy. I'm trying to get this company sold. It's it's my time is is very limited right now. Can't do it. So I put her off for about a week to 10 days and something just kind of stirred inside of me that I needed to call her back mm. and, and just be kind and see what she had uh, to offer. So I called her back, made an appointment, went down to see her in her company and um, did not know anything about insulation at all. Uh, but I really was intrigued with what they had designed, this product that they had designed. Um, and so I went back and kind of started doing my own due diligence, my own research to, to learn about the total addressable market, how big of an opportunity, you know, might this be, and was very intrigued with what I learned. Um, the insulation industry, particularly within oil and gas, is anywhere from one to two billion dollars a year. So it's wow. a pretty sizable total addressable market. Um, and I also recognized that the insulation being used in the oil and gas industry is the same stuff that they've been using for 30 or 40 years. There's been no innovation in that particular sector at all. And this was new. 
and this was exciting and it was very different than the typical insulation uh, that you find on oil field locations. And then I also noticed that there's no major players. It's what we call a mom and pop field, right? It's highly fragmented. Mm. And so I thought to myself, hmm, okay, so there's no, why couldn't we be the major player, you know? So I ended up uh, taking a minority position in the company in 2014, just to get my feet wet, right? Just to give them some seed money, give them some capital. And they, it was six figures and they blew through it in about 60 days. And I was like, Whoa. oh crap. So I knew that if I had any chance of getting my a return on my investment, that I was going to have to step in and, and, and take over. The timing worked out beautifully because we sold our other oil and gas business in June of 14. And I immediately, once we sold, I left and invested in Neo Insulation, became the CEO of Neo Insulation. Wow. So, it was, it was, God's timing was wonderful. Um, it, it helped out that I, I was able to move on from selling that one company. Uh, it was a liquidity event. And so I was able to invest in Neo and in, inject the capital required to kind of get it off its feet and, and started rolling. Now I'm curious when you were talking about the due diligence that you kind of did early on, this is always, I'm always curious about this, right? Like there's a, there's a plethora of ideas. There's a, there's so many opportunities of something we could put our time, our energy into, mm -hmm. especially if it's innovative, right? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned looking at things like the total addressable market um, and a few other things. How do, you, how do you think about that? Like, what, what are you most looking for if someone comes to you like that and says, I got this great idea? How do you filter it in your mind? So one of the first things I look for is, is the total opportunity, the TAM, total addressable market, because it's got to be huge, right? Because that way you don't have to be a dominant player to make a ton of money, mm -hmm. right? If your total addressable market is $10 million, then you got to have, you know, 70% margin before you're really going to, you know, reap the benefits, all right? So when the market is huge, it gives you an opportunity to start small and, and grow from within, I love the fact that it was highly fragmented, meaning that there's a whole bunch of just mom and pops. There wasn't any major players in the, in the industry. Yeah. Um, because I always felt like I always had the confidence that my team could execute better than other teams. And if we can execute better, we can gain market share in that regard. And then, but for me in this particular situation, Drew, the game changer was just the difference of neo insulation compared to traditional insulation. So ours is, um, it's a patented process and it's fully removable and reusable. Whereas traditional forms of insulation, you put it on, if you ever have to peel it off for any particular reason, you just trash it and have to pay to have your facility re-insulated. Ours is removable and reusable. And so I knew that that would capture the attention of all these oil and gas players. Now, how do you go about actually investigating some of that? Like the, the total addressable market makes sense. It's probably a few Google searches away to figure right. out what you've got there, but something like understanding some of the nuances of the industry, mm -hmm. you know, that it's mom and pop and that they're using this 40 year old insulation. How do you do that? Do you just quickly go talk to as many experts in a field as possible? Like, what does that look like? No, that's exactly right. And I had the benefit of already being in the oil and gas industry. Right. Sure. So I had, all, I had a ton of contacts. We operated my previous company that I was a part of. Um, we had operations all across uh, the United States. So I had contacts and field touches 
everywhere. And so it just became a point of, you know, we have access to so much information these days that there's really no excuse to not know. Yeah. It's really, it's really easy to figure stuff out through Google and through um, social media and just, you know, basic searches. And so it's really not that difficult, but you do have to know what you're looking for. Right. And so you can do something as simple as do a search for oil field pipe insulation and see what comes up. And if you don't have, you know, if, if the names that come up, you click on those websites and it takes you to some mom and pop website that's done by Wix, you, you realize that that's, you know, probably a pretty small outfit. Uh, you yeah. can kind of tell who's got, who's invested the money in their websites and, and who hasn't. So it was pretty easy for me to do that work. Okay. Um, which was very fortunate because when you've got a big market that's highly fragmented and the best product, man, that's a recipe for success. Absolutely. The reason I ask is, you know, I, I'm, I'm now well aware of how hard success is even in the best of conditions, right? That I'd like to be able to better understand for our audience and even for myself in the future, like how to at least make sure you've checked certain boxes, right? Mm -hmm. to, that, that if you're going to step into an idea, you've done some good due diligence and even uh, how, how, you know, how big is the upside? What kind of risk is this? Is this needed in the market? You know, those kinds of things versus we just get excited. Some people just fall in love with their idea right. and, and, and keep bashing against the wall mm -hmm. um, and wasting a lot of time, energy and money in it. So yeah. mm -hmm. thank you for answering that. That makes some sense. You know, you said something earlier that I just want to ask a little bit more about when you decided to call her back, you said something stirred in me. And I'm just curious for you if that's something you've you've listened to and followed a lot in your life, right? Uh, that you pay attention to to the internal promptings wherever they may be coming from, uh, or not? Is that was that a unique case? No, you're very perceptive. Um, I, I, I chose those words very carefully because the answer is yes. I very much um, believe in those internal um, messages or those notifications, kind of that gut feel. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm strong in my faith in God. And I, I honestly believe that God led me to take this opportunity because he had it as um, he knew that it was going to be a platform for me and what my objective was. And so when we sold the, the previous company, um, we did well financially. And so I wasn't money motivated. I mean, yeah. I am money motivated. Don't get me wrong. We all like to we all like to make money. But it became very clear to me very early that um, my main purpose for Neo Insulation, and I, I had this in some of the notes that I wanted to be sure to share with you today. Um, my main purpose at Neo is to develop people, is to grow and develop people. And um, I believe that God gave me Neo as a platform to do that, right? And so that's what's most critical and most important for me is I want, I want to empower our team to grow them professionally, financially, emotionally, spiritually, we talk about being better fathers, being better husbands, being better brothers, wives, sisters, you know, we just, we just really focus on the people. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of my driving motivation right there. I want to dive into that a little bit more. Um, you can take this wherever you would like, but I've noticed in my work, so I do people development, right? So I'm in these mm -hmm. kind of conversations often that, the question around purpose and even motivations is sometimes elusive for people, right? They don't even know to ask that question, right? I'm just in this business. I'm just making it work. 
versus some of the more subtle things like, now what's really driving you? What does success really look like? What's your purpose? What, however you define it. And I'm curious, how did you discover? And I, I don't, I know it's an evolving thing. So it's not like you just found a tablet somewhere, but like, what did that look like for you to even ask the right questions? And when did you feel like we can make it specific to this if, it, if, it, if you want, that you knew that was the purpose deeper than just making this company successful? So I had a, I, I went to a seminar or heard a message one time that was spoken to me actually by a friend of mine. And the message was on um, success versus significance. And everybody wants success. That's the most common term. Everybody talks about being successful, being successful, being successful. And he challenged me to not be successful, but rather be significant. Mm-hmm. Be significant in other people's lives. Be impactful. Be positive. Be a positive change in their lives. And success will come. You can have success without being significant. It's hard to be significant without being successful. And that really kind of stirred in me there. And we went through a period in the previous company where it was it was a real challenge. I mean, we went from uh, we went from zero to 127 million in revenue in five years. Whoa! Yeah, and it was just hair on fire, crazy hours, um, blowing and going, um, just constantly. At the CFO, I was just constantly putting out fires, dealing with problems and cash flow issues. You know. Etc. It's a very capital intensive business as well. It was a wonderful business. I had a phenomenal CEO um, and business partner who happens to be my business partner in Neo Insulation now as well. So we were very different. Um, he's very press on the gas, go fast forward. And I'm, not, I'm always one not pulling on the reins saying, oh, hey, hold on, hold on. So we, met, we work very, very well together. Um, but the transition from that company into Neo, um, and to be very honest with you, I went from being second in charge at that company to being first in charge at Neo Insulation, and that gave me the opportunity to take the company in the direction that I wanted to take it in, to create the culture that I wanted to create, which is not much different than the culture we had at the previous company, but I knew I was responsible for it, yeah. so I had that weight on me. Yeah, you got to kind of steward it, the steward it at the other company. You got to create it at this new one. Beautiful way to put it. Exactly. Man, it takes me back to a, a meaningful moment for me uh, when I was transitioning careers. I had a, a career uh, actually in ministry for my for, for all of my twenties, and then I had felt like I was being led to go do something else, like in, in in a broader context, right? And I remember being paralyzed by options and decisions, and didn't know where to go. And that idea of significance versus success, I wouldn't have used those exact language, but it's a very similar paradigm that's made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And the question wasn't what would work. The question I, I, to me, I was like, what are the skills that I have that if I were to master would be of utmost value to other people, yeah, right? Great. Same idea. Yes, like not everyone's gifted in the same things. So mm-hmm. I was like, what do I have that if I got really mm-hmm. good at it would serve other people really well? Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, communicating and coaching and so i was like well i guess that's the direction i'm going to go in and i'll figure the business part of it out i'll figure target market out all that kind of stuff but i know the significance of the purpose i have is to make a difference in that way right and it would just it it was like clarity you Mm -hmm. know in the midst of still plenty of decisions to make but i I call it like a true north 
as long as I'm going that way, mm-hmm. that's going to be how I could best serve people. And that's great. It feels, yeah. It feels like a, 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 a clarifying, cause there's so many needs and there's wants and there's desires pulling us in all sorts of directions. And I find the most stable people are those people like you that very easily could say, you know what my ultimate purpose is and boom, there it is. Right. So I'm curious for you, how has it trickled into the company here at Neo Insulation? Like, where do we see something that can be, feel abstract, like choosing significance over success? Mm-hmm. And actually, what does it guide certain decisions that you guys make? Does it result in how you approach your customers? You know, like where we're, we're choosing to impact and, and serve people versus just take profit at every turn. I'm just throwing out examples, but sure, sure. Where do you see that that kind of purpose finding its way in this work? I probably see it most in the development of our employees. So we are really cognizant of the fact that we we try very very hard to create an environment where people want to work for Neo for more than a paycheck. Mm. Right? We don't want you here to punch a clock and collect a paycheck, and that's it. It's very, very critical for me that everybody from my COO down to the most recent new hire that we have understands our vision, understands our values and what we believe in. And they have to believe in that as well. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we hire people that do just want a paycheck and they really don't care about the values and the vision. And over time that comes out. And we replace them and we bring somebody on board that does understand the values and and the visions of the company. But it all starts at leadership, right? I'm a a huge, huge believer in leadership. I've read more leadership books than I care to admit. And I'm I'm still learning. I'm still growing very, very much. I I got a lot of room for improvement. But I, I honestly believe that everything starts at the leadership and it works its way down your organization. I believe that your organization will take on the values, the visions, the tolerances um, of what the leader is willing to tolerate and what the leader's values and visions are. Mm. And that's, and so there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And so our objective is to make people feel empowered by their positions and inspired. Um, We don't use the term motivated, because in motivation, motivation is you getting someone to do something that they don't really want to do. Yeah. Right. Inspiration is giving them the encouragement and the belief that they can do anything, that they can tackle anything. And that's, we, we focus much more on that than we do, you know, threatening or motivating people to do something or they're going to lose their job. You know, mm. it's very, I, I have a phrase with my, with my managers. We, we talk about being ferocious encouragers. We want to be ferocious encouragers to all of our, our, all of our, all of our people. And that trickles down, right? I mean, that ends up kind of infiltrating everybody. And we're, we, I'm a big sports guy. And so we use team analogies all the time. Yeah. Back of all of our shirts say team Neo on them, you know, and we want to be encouraging and uplifting to one another. There's no reason to beat each other down and beat each other up and, um, you know, we just try to make it a place where people can not only come to, to work, but also come to talk about life and talk about what's going on in their world and maybe maybe provide guidance and counsel in some certain situations that could be helpful to them that they might not get elsewhere. Did you see or find any examples or 
metaphors or things that like it could be sports, a, a team, a coach that, you know, you know, like, was there anything that helped kind of paint a picture once you had the impulse, the impulse, I want to develop these people. I want them to love working here, but then we have to figure out how, right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always just curious, like, where did ideas come from? Did anything inspire you or help you in seeing that into a, a, a reality in your company? So I, in addition to running Neo, I spent a lot of time coaching. I, I coach youth sports a lot, um, primarily basketball, or now it's only basketball. Um, and I have had a few coaches in my life that mm. um, have been a source of inspiration to me. I believe that coaching is um, a great responsibility a significant responsibility. You have the ability to spend time with the youth um, when they're in their most informative stages and it's time away from their parents. It's time away from their siblings. It's just me and the team in the gym, right? And I believe wholeheartedly that coaches either breathe life into their players or they breathe death into their players. They are positive, encouraging, uplifting, trying to prepare them for the real world, establishing relationships with them that last for, you know, decades. Or you've got the coaches that just beat you down, are ruled by fear, ruled by intimidation and tear you apart and try to motivate you. Remember the difference between yep. motivation and inspiration. And I don't like that direction. I like, <laughs> I like this direction. I like to breathe life into people and to be encouraging. And so I have one or two coaches like that in my life that were the encouraging type. I also know coaches very well that choose the other route and we don't want to go that route. We simply want to be that source of inspiration and, and encouragement and, and um, love quite frankly for yeah. our people that um, they can find a safe place where they, they, they choose to spend eight hours of their day with us. I love that. I love that. Have you ever seen the show on Netflix, uh, Last Chance You? I'm, I'm familiar with it. I haven't watched it. My boys have all watched it, though. They love it. I love it. I mean, it, it, but it's also one that at times I'm watching through my fingers. I get embarrassed for people easily, and I'll like watch through my fingers. <laughs> and some of the again, I don't want to rag on anybody. They have a tough job, right? They're an underfunded school uh, with players who are on their last chance that have gotten in a lot of trouble. It's a very challenging job, but nine times out of 10, they only know how to use fear, intimidation, screaming, and you can just watch like from the outside and you can watch how it's not working and it's actually working against them. That's They're right. Losing trust with their players. They're actually making them less motivated and all this. And I'm like, I'm dying over there. Like, can you not see, right? Again, I'm not judging them uh, per se, but it, it is interesting to see it on display and go, there's a much better way of doing that. than. Oh, that. you, I know you're a Clemson guy, right? Yep. All right. Dabo Sweeney, one of the best examples in coaching of that positive, encouraging, uplifting, Christ-like mentality. Yeah. And he's proven that it works. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he's a, he's a big, I'm a big fan of Dabo. Yeah, man. It was cool watching. I got to watch right when he came in. So uh, I'm 36 and right at the end of my college career was when he took over as the assistant coach and we were terrible. I mean, <laughs> just middle of the pack every year, disappointing, heartbreaking to be a Clemson fan. They made a verb about us, right? They said, Oh, yeah. that team's Clemsoning, which oh, meant, gosh. I mean, literally there was a verb about yeah. us. We're 
you, if you failed, if you had an opportunity to do something and you failed, you were Clemsoning. Oh God. And he took in that program, man. And it was the early years. No one was sure. He, I mean, his first recruiting class was eight people. Wow. Eight by choice. Yeah. And he said they were the only eight he found that were buying into his vision and he was going to start with them. There you go. And it's similar to b- building a company. Like he didn't just take mm-hmm. the biggest superstars, whatever. He's like, I have a vision for the kinds of players I want for the kind of culture I'm trying to build here. And I'd rather recruit eight and build off of them than 22 and, and not have who I want. And what was crazy is that eight recruited the others. Like CJ Spiller yeah. was one of them. That's awesome. And CJ Spiller recruited some of our other running backs in the future and Deshaun Watson and those other people mm-hmm. that came after him, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm just curious if you've seen the same in hiring people, right? Like you've got a vision for the company, but then you start growing fast and you're having to fill positions. And sometimes we can fall into that, put butts in seats, you know, like yeah. you just have the competency and how do you guys think about, like you said, hiring for fit, not just for function, right? That's a great way to look at it. And, and we try very hard. Sometimes we fail. Sure. Right. Sometimes we make, we make mistakes and, and put the wrong wrong person in the position. I'll tell you a mistake that we made often early drew was whenever we were growing and we needed, you know, we needed to fill those positions. Oftentimes we felt compelled to fill the position from within, right? Okay. So we would promote someone from within. So an example that I'm thinking of is we've got a big field office out in Midland, Texas, you know, which is the biggest oil and gas field, you know, in North America, very important field office for us out there. And we had a technician, we call him field technician, who was excellent. I mean, he was the, he was the best field technician that we had. He's the guy that goes out into the field, does the work, you know, he's just a blue collar guy grinding it out, but he did an excellent, excellent job. Well, the, position of project manager came open to us because um, the current project manager had to leave the company um, on his own wheel, not on ours. But um, this guy want, you know, wanted to be promoted from within. We're like, well, hell, he's great at being a field technician. So yeah. he'd probably be a great port- a pro- project manager as well. So we promoted him to project manager and it was a, it was a complete disaster. And, we, we, we promoted him beyond his skill set, number one. And in doing so, what we did was not only did we have a very marginal project manager in place, we lost our best field technician too. Mm. So it's kind of a, it's a double whammy, right? You lose your best field guy and then you've got a marginal project manager. So we learned from that, you know, we learned from that mistake um, as well. And we do have a pretty intense um, hiring process that we go through. Um, I've adopted the okay. philosophy a long time ago called slow to hire, quick to fire. And that yes, is, I'm going to take bring my that time, up. take my time hiring the right people. And I'm going to interview them. My COO is going to interview them. I've got other guys in the company that spend time interviewing. We have assessments that are done as well. Um, you know, written assessments and we take our time in the hiring process. Um, because it is so critical for us. And it's absolutely important that we get those people on board that understand and believe in our vision. And so slow to hire, quick to fire. That's kind of what we, we don't really fire too many people, but yeah, um, you know, you, we, we will if we have to. Right, right. Most of the time I, they fire themselves. Well, that's what I was going to say. It feels like when you have a strong culture and you have hired enough people correctly, you know, we were interviewing uh, these guys from Sorenex. They create all, all the workout equipment and most uh, professional 
uh, locker rooms and even in the gym down the road I go to, they have Sorenex machines. They're these muscle-bound, bigger beards than I guys. Uh-huh. And uh, we went and take a tour of their facility because they're just legends in the industry. And I was like, man, how do you, how do you create such a culture? They have such an intense culture, like sure. very intense. Yeah. And they said, once this culture is strong enough, it's a self-select process. Like we do our due diligence to feel like you're the right person. But they said, usually within a month or two, we can tell and mm-hmm. they can tell mm-hmm. if they are really the right person. And so I agree. they'll either leave themselves or we will, it's, it's almost like a mutual agreement because they right. can just, they just don't fit. Right. Yep. Yep. And I was curious if you've seen the same thing where again, not every time, but for the most part, there's some sort of self-selecting that starts to happen when you have a very consistent, mm-hmm. potent culture. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that a hundred, a hundred percent. And I also, I also caution people that when you have someone that is not the right fit, um, be careful because if you keep them around too long, it, it's like a cancer. Yes. They can, they can quickly begin to drag other people within your organization down. If they're always talking negatively about their boss or they're talking negatively about the job. And so you have to be, and now keep in mind, my primary function is to develop people, right? So I don't fire people quickly Yeah. with regards to if I believe they have potential, if I believe they just, if they can understand the vision. So I will try to develop them, but almost Every time it becomes pretty, um, you become aware within two to three months, whether or not they're going to get it or not, that they're going to understand the vision yeah. and be part of your culture or not. Man, I got to see, uh, I got to see up close a client that we work with, how much damage the wrong person there's, there's the wrong fit that's just not working. And then there's the wrong fit that, like you said, is actually cancerous, right? This person had only been there for two months. And the amount that we call it like emotional terrorism, like the amount mm-hmm. of twisting up mm-hmm. that that person did on like on different people on the team, mm-hmm. the distrust it created between people because she was telling this person one thing and this person yep. another thing. And it's taken us months to unwind the damage, right? right. Damage control. Yeah. Oh, it was insane because we didn't know what the issue was at first. They literally called and said, can you get down here Monday? We've got some drama going on. We're like, great. And finally, like six hours in, we realized like one person that's no longer even there, they're not even in this room, was the one that had created all this drama. And everyone had the lights on moment like there's actually not an issue between us, Mm -hmm. right? Like somebody that's no longer even here created this issue between us. Yeah, It, it It just cemented in my mind like the sobriety or the significance of trying your best. It's an imperfect process but trying your best to get the right fits early yeah, right 100 agree at the size you guys are at now what feels like the primary challenge for you as a company right so i, I actually don't even know what are we at 20 people are we at 150 people like what's the size of the company and then as the ceo what's the what's the challenge like at that stage of growth you're in so we are at about 60 to 65 people okay right now um one of the things that I love about Neo is that it does not require a significant amount of people to do the work. Mm. Now, in our, in our previous uh, oil and gas company, we had 600 people, right? And that was an absolute nightmare. I mean, 600 oil hands, difficult wow. to, to manage. So one of the things that's enticing to me is Neo is not labor intensive, Remember, our product is it's a it's a Velcro application, right? Okay. So it's easy to put on, easy to take off. So it's very quick. 
So we don't need a huge labor force of people to do our job, to, to do the installations, for example. So of those 65, we've probably got, you know, a third of them are in our manufacturing facility where they're actually building our product for us. Um, and so I'm grateful that, that to scale and to grow Neo, it's not going to require, you know, 400, 500 people yeah. to get yeah. where we need to get where we need to be. Because with, again, developing people is my passion, but I will also tell you without a doubt, the most difficult part of managing a business is the people is managing your employees, managing the people and the drama that comes with that. And so we're at a position right now where um, we're certainly still in growth mode. I would, I would guess that we never get to that 400, 500 people position. If we do, I probably, I'll probably be gone by then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody else steer this cruise ship. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, this, again, this is just learning for people that have listened. They know I ask this question a lot. Uh, I, I'm always curious around the stages of growth that companies go through. And do you see it being different at 60 to 65 people versus when you had 10 to 20 people? Does it feel like a different stage where early on maybe it was more organic? And it does. Now, here, let, let's, let's change it to revenue instead okay. of, number of number of employees. So what I've, I've been fortunate to be a part of multiple businesses in the, in the past and kind of in my mind the way it works drew is number one the first million is your hardest first mm -hmm. million in revenue is your hardest just getting something that people are going to buy that's that's the hardest right and then you can go from zero to 10 million in revenue and that is a lot of work because that's when you're really trying to put your your policies in place your procedures in place you're trying to nail down your manufacturing you're trying to just get everything streamlined and you're learning as you go and so zero to ten zero to one is the hardest one to ten is super super hard all right and then ten to thirty ten to thirty five is a challenge but for some reason when you get above thirty five million thirty thirty five million and you're trying to get to that hundred million it just it just interesting clicks. Because you've already you've already established the brand, you've yep. already established a reputation, and then it just becomes scaling. So again, zero to one is the hardest. One to ten, super hard. Ten to thirty is hard work, but not as hard. But then, for yeah. some reason, if you know if you're fortunate enough, going from thirty to a hundred million, uh, to me, in my experience, this has been has been easier than from zero to ten. That's so helpful. The man. So it's it's each of those first three stages are unquestionably in the hard category, but in a sense they're slightly decreasing in their difficulty. Yes. is what it sounds Correct. like, um, and it makes sense. I mean, I, I, I have, why am I stuttering over my words? Uh, the book is a startup J curve. Have you ever read that? or heard that guy give talks. I have not. Very interesting. Somebody that's invested in over a hundred companies and all that kind of stuff um, mentioned that he saw a similar curve that he would call the startup J curve. And that there's, I'm going to probably butcher it, but the essence is going to be correct, which is you have the initial idea and then it starts a descent into difficulty. And it's, uh, I think second or third stage is what you'd call morphing. And it's where your ideas actually met the potential customer mm -hmm. and you're having to learn on the fly what really is working. And that to me right. is around that zero to a million category. Like, uh -huh. Uh -huh. man, do we know how to close a sale? Do we know what they like more than that? And have we priced it right? And all that kind of stuff. 
And he said, it's only once you've successfully morphed and got a product market fit that you can then even understand what the business model is. And then you can start to scale. And then you start going up, even though it's still in difficulty because he has this line where you're under the line for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But then once you get past it, it gets faster and faster in, in growth acceleration. Right. Is that, that's That's like in our, in our example, we, when we first started, we spent all of our energy at the front end on sales, right? We just wanted to talk to as many people, see if there was anybody that was interested, sales, 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 sales. Well, then we started selling and people started buying. And all of a sudden we woke up and we thought, oh crap, we, we can't manufacture this stuff. <laughs> we got a problem manufacturing it. Now, yeah. now we know people want to buy it, but now we got to focus our attention on the manufacturing. And we've got a pretty compelling story of where we outsold our, ourselves. You know, wow. we, we just we sold so much more than we could manufacture to meet customer expectations that we almost failed. I mean, we almost just had to fold up shop because we ticked customers off because we told them about this great product that we had and then we couldn't deliver it. Right. So we then we had to shift our focus from sales over to manufacturing. And that's in that that's in that one to ten million dollar range where we finally got the manufacturing process really refined. I was very, very fortunate. I brought two key individuals on during that time frame that are still with me today that are, are truly the lifeline of Neo Insulation. Uh, I brought on a guy named uh, Blake Birch. Blake's our director of manufacturing. And he, he saved us because he took over manufacturing that was just a it was a clown. I mean, it was just a mess and he took that over and, and got that all straightened up to where we could actually build the product that my guys were out selling. Right. Yeah. And then shortly after we brought Blake on board, I brought a guy on named David Morris. Now, David was actually a consultant for me and introduced Blake to me, Hmm. but he was a consultant. Well, fortunately, David ended up liking the company enough that I was able to entice him away from consulting and say, Hey, you need to come on board as my chief operations officer. And those two hires without a doubt um, have been the most significant um, transition points in, in our company's history. Wow. They've, they've really, they've really kind of taken the reins and helped us grow to where we are today. And David does all the policies and procedures and Blake does the manufacturing and, I get to do fun stuff like this with you and I. Yeah. Now, this may be a no-brainer based on your industry or based on your business model or whatever, but take me into the decision to manufacture yourself mm-hmm. and to figure all that out versus outsourcing that. So, great story. Um, I invest in the company in 14, take over majority ownership in 2015. Um, I've got such high hopes and ambitions for what we're going to do. I book a trip to China. I go to China, um, start looking at these manufacturing facilities and these plants over in China, was actually going to invest in one over there, Um, was very excited about it, made some connections, ordered a bunch of raw materials from them to ship over to us because we were still manufacturing in-house. And it was about, um, at the time, it was a huge amount for us, but it was about an $80,000 order that I made. And I completely, either I screwed it up or China screwed it up. And <laughs> I had to eat $80,000, you 
worth Dang. of material. I just I bought I bought or they sent the wrong material. There's some there's some question as to who was wrong. You know, you have the whole translation issue. You know, the stuff that we were ordering was very precise. You know, and it's the wrong stuff. And so I had to eat eighty thousand dollars worth of material. And at that point, I started realizing, okay, um, what we're manufacturing is not terribly difficult, but we need to maintain control of that process. And so by the time it would be, could we manufacture it cheaper in China? Absolutely, there's no, there's no doubt. But you also have logistical issues that people are dealing with today, like shipping containers and transportation from China over to the United States that you'd have to deal with. We manufacture everything right here in the old US of A in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We've been fortunate through our growth we now have partnered with a very large manufacturing outfit in Arkansas that has about 600,000 square feet of manufacturing space. So they are kind of our overflow. When we get real busy, we send more product to them, more raw materials to them. Um, but we've kind of just made the decision to maintain control of the manufacturing process, provide jobs here in Oklahoma and feel pretty good about it. Um, and you know, our margins could be better if we, you know, got it from China, but we wouldn't have all those relationships and those opportunities to further develop people. So we're, wow. willing, to, we're willing to take it. Wow, man. It reminds me not because you guys made the same decisions uh, in some ways you made very different decisions, but the, have you read the book shoe dog on how no. Nike got started? Oh, that's Phil Knight. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. man. I bet you just enjoy, I just enjoyed it going along for the ride of the story, you know, yeah, like, yeah. and seeing how Nike started and, you know, almost, tanked several times one manufacturing issues then banks had a different philosophy on money right so mm -hmm. he was bringing in incredible amounts of revenue but he was always reinvesting it into the business mm -hmm. not keeping any of that money in the bank and so they started denying him loans and he's like what are you talking about like i have this company look how much we're making and they're like yeah but that's not what we look at we right. look at how little money you're leaving in that bank account right yeah and it was just so cool to hear the different trajectory of the growth and the different challenges at the different stages. Uh, so I didn't know if, if you'd read it, you might find some similar parts to your story. That's one of the things. So I'm a finance guy at heart, right? I was, I was in finance, the finance world for about 18 years before I got into the oil and gas industry. One of the biggest mistakes that businesses make is they confuse revenue and profitability. You can make a ton of revenue, but if you're not making any money and net income, it doesn't matter. It looks good on paper. You right. Know, you tell somebody I'm doing 30 million a year in revenue, but then they, you know, you realize you lost 12 million in, in cash. Um, so we, we focus very hard on high margins and high profitability. So I, I think of it this way, Drew, I would rather be a $30 million company that has 30% margins. Okay. than a $100 million company with 5% margins. Yep. Because at the $30 million company with 30% margins, simple math tells you that's $9 million a year, right? If you're a $100 million company at 5% margins, you're $5 million a year, but you're doing three times the work required to make almost half the money. So I'm a big believer in the high margin business and protecting our, our margins. But the only way you can do that is to have a, a specialized product, to have a unique product. You can't have just a a, a commoditized product that everybody else is just competing on price against. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I wanted just to get your, your philosophy on money and business, right? 
and I, I'm, it, it's going to start off vague, but maybe this will help. So we had somebody on the podcast that I'm just going to use as an example, not like a, this person said, and then who sees what, see what you say. But I just thought I was curious in his business. One of the ways he said is uh, he found that it was helpful for him not to run his business the way that he runs his personal checkbook, that he found there were stages where he needed to hire first, knowing that that would bring in the money mm-hmm. versus waiting for the money to be there. And then I could hire. And it was counterintuitive because in his personal checkbook, he wouldn't do that. He'd wait till he could afford something and then buy it. Yep. But in business, he said to scale, he had to get get a different idea of debt, that he'd be willing yep. to take certain risks, knowing that it would produce certain outcomes rather than just wait for that cash to be sitting on hand to make the next round of hires. Mm-hmm. That was very interesting to me. And I was just curious if you see it similarly, totally differently or somewhere in between. No, it's, it, I would say in between. I think I certainly understand that guy's position. Um I think a lot of people have a very um, misunderstanding of debt. You know, um, debt, debt works. It's a double-edged sword. When you're in growth mode and you take on debt, it allows you to grow significantly faster because you're using someone else's money yeah. as that base to grow off of, right? But when things go bad and COVID hits and we have a 2020 and you've got a lot of outstanding debt, man, it cuts you to the quick, you know, really fast, really bad. And so what was interesting is in the, in the previous company that we had, we were a bootstrapped company, didn't take on any debt at all until we started acquiring other companies. Once we started acquiring other companies, we would take on debt to do that. We were very fortunate that we remained in a very bullish market during that time. And so the debt that we did have enabled us to grow that much more rapidly. Right. That's how we got from zero to 127 million in, in five or six years. I'm taking a different approach with NEO in that NEO, we are a debt free company. We have absolutely zero debt and we are funding everything from organic cash flow. Part of the reason for that, though, Drew, is because NEO is not nearly as capital as capital intensive. intensive as our previous company. Our previous company required a boatload of equipment. So we're buying millions of dollars worth of equipment every month, right? At NEO, it's not very capital intensive. Our, our, our equipment that we need is sewing machines, right? And so we have the luxury of being able to grow organically and not take on that debt. Now, as we expand into other product lines and begin to offer, have more offerings, and we want to hit the fast forward button, I won't be afraid of debt but I'm a finance guy. So I I understand money and a lot of small businesses don't. And they listen to their banker and their banker says, Hey, you can take this money and grow at 40% per year and you're going to get rich and everything's going to be wonderful. But then they fail to warn you about the fact that they expect to get that money paid back to them with interest. Right. And then it it comes back to bite them. So I'm a believer that debt can be a good tool it just has to be understood. Right. And that, I think that's what I'm looking at because there's, you know, mm-hmm. our company, several other companies that are so much smaller. Uh, you hit a you hit a place where you're growing and you go, you know, if we hired a salesperson or if we hired an executive assistant or we hired some of these positions, I think it really would increase capacity and increase sales and whatever. But you get in that like, is it too early to take on any, like not even a lot, but any kind of debt when that just scares the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got other voices going, no, like bet on the business, take that, mm-hmm. hire that person, knowing the money's going to come. And it's a kind of push and pull. So I'm just getting perspectives 
how would you answer something like that? You're, you're never going to lose that. You're never going to lose that fear, that confusion of, am, am I doing the right thing in that regard? Because of all the businesses that I've owned, we, we still, we still deal with that today. Do we, you know, we're getting ready to open a new field office in uh, Pennsylvania, kind of moving up to the Northeast to capture that market share. Um, and it requires money to do that, you know, to get a field office, to hire a project manager, to hire a sales guy. And so we're asking ourselves the question, do we put forth the money to hire a, you know, a high profile, excellent sales guy, or do I just travel up there every week, you know, to handle it myself? Yes. Right. Yes. And, and at this point, our decision has been, we want to hire somebody to do that. So, um, I, I do believe that oftentimes one of the mistakes that new businesses make is they're too conservative. They're, they try to play it safe too much. Sometimes, man, you just got to bite the bullet, go, and then recognize if you made a mistake and correct the mistake. Yeah. You know, like, when I'm coaching basketball, Drew, I always tell my kids, if you're not making mistakes, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. If you're on the court and you're never making a mistake, you're just not working hard enough. Mm. I want you to make mistakes. But the important thing is, how do you recover from that mistake? Yeah. How do you how do you recognize it and try not to let it happen again? And it's the same thing in business. We make mistakes all the time. We just mm. try to learn from them. Man, that's super good. I think you and I are going to have a conversation offline more about this. Cool. Cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, man, this has been super, super informative and helpful and some many different angles we haven't gotten much on the podcast. So uh, thank you for sharing and the random questions I've been asking you. This has been awesome. You bet. You bet. Cool. Well, let's get into our lightning round questions. And I'll let you get back to your busy day. Okay. So question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? One message. I'm going to say the message and then I'm gonna, you're going to have to give me the opportunity to explain it. Go for it. Okay. So the message is um, do your job. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. Don't hate me for this, but I actually stole this from Nick Saban. Cool. Okay. I saw a, I saw Nick Saban give a speech one time and he was talking about how, you know, all of these colleges, all these um, football teams, basketball teams, as they're exiting the locker room, they all have some type of a sign above their doorway that says play like a champion today, attitude and effort, you know, protect this house, whatever. And everybody's running out and slaps that slaps that sign, right. For motivation. The sign at Alabama reads, do your job. And Nick Saban's whole point was that as players or as employees, your number one responsibility is to do your job. It's yeah. my job. It's management's job's responsibility to make sure you have the right people in the right positions. The quarterback shouldn't be worried about if the safety is doing his job. The wide receiver shouldn't be worried about the tight end, so on and so forth. Yep. Every position just needs to do their job and entrust that management has put the right people in the right positions to create and complete the value and the vision of the company. Man, I, I love that. There's been um, inspiration for me came from, I think it's called the phalanx. It's the strategy that like the Roman, and I think it first started in Greek, but the Greek warriors were famous for that won them battles. And it was that idea, maybe seen like in uh, Sparta or in, mm -hmm. you know, those movies where they have a shield, but each person's job is to have their, I think their left arm, their shield covers the guy to the left of them. Okay. And it frees up their right arm to be uh -huh. able to attack. Uh -huh. 
while being guarded by the guy to the right, whose left yeah. shield is yeah. covering them. Right. I like that. Yeah. And the idea was that like each person doing their job was actually tr both trusting and protecting the person to the left yeah. and right of them to focus on the guy right in front of them. Yeah. Right. I love that. And then the other part is if you let your part down, it creates a weakness mm -hmm. in the whole chain. Right. Like, man, the enemy can get in through there. If you, if you're not, if you took your eyes off of your shield, cause you were watching the battle to the right or to the left. Um, and that's, that's felt very true for us in business. Like, yeah. just like you said, like, man, what's your blocking and tackling, man? No, How are you exactly right. crushing that? Right. Right. So good. All right. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Best advice, um, build the right team. We've talked a lot about that today, right? Having the right team in place is absolutely critical. You can have the best product in the world. Um, but if you've got a crappy team, you're not going to go anywhere. So um, build the right team. The second part of that, that I learned from um, my chief operations officer, David, that I mentioned earlier, he said, our objective should be to make our customers' lives easier. It's real simple. Just make their lives easier. If yeah. you have the best product and you can make their life easier, you're going to get the call. You're going to get the work. And so that was probably the best advice. Build the right team, make your customer's life easier. Love Worst it. advice, um, I mentioned it earlier. Play it safe. Be careful. Um, you know, if you wait until you are absolutely certain that one of the things that you're trying to do is going to be successful, it's probably you've, you've waited too long. It's too late. Yeah. You know, once you're, you know, 60, 70 percent certain that you got it and there's still that 30 percent that scares you to death. Go for it. Go for it. Don't 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 wait and think that you got to have all your ducks in a row because everybody's going to make mistakes. You just got to make the mistakes and then learn from them. Heck yeah. That's so good. All right. Question number three. What causes you the most worry or stress currently leading your organization? On a, on a daily basis, it's driving. And what I mean by that is in all of our different field offices, my field technicians are driving on, on the road, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, they, we spend a lot of what we call windshield time driving because in the oil field, a lot of these locations might be three hours away from our field office, right? So they'll spend six hours in one day just driving to and from. And um, on a daily basis, that's what concerns me is just the safety and well-being of my guys, you know, because they're, they're spending so much time um, on the highway. In, in a bigger picture, the thing that concerns me the most is what I call stagnation. And that is I just am fearful because we've had success that the team gets complacent mm. and just kind of sits back and says, hey, we're all doing really well. We're making some money here. Let's just kind of kick up and coast for a bit and yeah. i firmly believe that if you're not growing you're dying and so stagnation is is probably the big one of the bigger fears that i have and so it's my job to as best i can motivate and inspire people to continue to press forward heck yeah okay question number four what is your bhag your big hairy audacious goal for this business <laughs> um i'm going to tell you a story Sir. that influences this decision here. So I've got three boys. And when my oldest was born, he had some complications with his legs. We were kind of, kind of concerned that, that he was going to have some uh, malformities in his, in his legs. 
And so we lived in Dallas, Texas at the time, and we went to a Scottish Rite hospital. We walked into this hospital and it was bright, it was clean, everybody was in a great mood. Um, they saw my son, we had some specialists see my son and he ended up being perfectly fine and turned into be a, a fantastic athlete. But when we were done with those meetings, I would go up to the front desk and I would say, hey, my name is Justin Mecklenburg, I need to you know, pay you for the services for my son, Mason. And they looked at me and they said, um, no cost. Everything in this hospital is free. And I'm like, what? And they said, yeah, every, everything in this hospital is free. And I started thinking about that. So I started wow. doing some homework on that, some research on that hospital. And basically what happened was you had a family that had great success, donated, you know, this is like back in the twenties, I believe, donated a hundred million dollars to start this hospital. And from that hospital, they've been able to, they've been able to fund um, themselves. And of course they take donors, they take sponsorships, you know, et cetera, but they treat those kids free of charge. And I'll never forget Drew walking out of that hospital going someday, wow. someday I'm going to make a hundred million dollars and I'm going to start a hospital or an organization just like that. Man, creating that moment, right? Creating yeah, that it moment. Was, it was, it, I get kind of choked up just thinking about it because it was very impactful to me to think that somebody made that big of a difference by starting an organization to help others and offer it free of charge. Yeah, man, I'm going to log that story away from me and from my partner. But that was, we've had to do a lot of mental upgrading on our thoughts and beliefs around success and money. And, you know, we started off not in a negative place, but like almost overly wary of it, you know, mm -hmm. that like it's just going to create all sorts of corruption and it's always about vanity and there's no meaning to money. And then I found that it was what you do with it and that you could have the opportunity to richly bless people and that it's only a resource. It's not the only resource. It's one of many. Right. But dang, you can do a lot of good. Yeah. If, you know what I'm saying? So, like, so I, I, I spend a lot of time studying money and the concept of money, especially like in biblical terms. Yeah. Okay. So what's interesting is the topic of money is discussed over 2000 times in the Bible is the, the topic of prayer is discussed about 500 times in the Bible. So money is talked about four times more than prayer is in the Bible. So it's very, wow. important. it's very significant, right? People often misquote the Bible and say money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money yeah. is the root of all evil. And there's a big difference. I believe this was, a, this was kind of a um, significant moment for me. I believe wholeheartedly that money is a magnifier. Money magnifies who you already are. Yes. If you are kind and generous and will give people the shirt off your back when you're poor, you will be kind and generous and giving to people whenever you're rich. If you are greedy and tight and cheap and selfish when you're poor, you'll be all of those things whenever you're rich as well. Mm. So I believe that money gets a bad name. But in truth, money is just a magnifier of who you are internally. Beautifully said. Yes, I received that. All right. It also gives you great incentive to go ahead and work on those attributes now, like not yeah. falling into when I have money, I'll become kind right. and generous and whatever. It's right. like, man, if that's a magnifier, that needs to be in a value instilled in, in us wherever you're at. 
right? That's right. Whatever your bank account looks like, are you practicing that kindness, that ge- that generosity, that willingness to to help people and fight really that self preservation instinct, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah, we have a we have a phrase at Neo that we want to be known as being irrationally generous. Mm. We want to be so generous that people are like, they did what? You got to be kidding me. We want to be irrationally generous at Neo. Love it. All right, number five, easiest question yet, or most difficult, depending on how you look at it. Uh, this is just a fun, creative question. So, if you could hop into a DeLorean, we're playing Back to the Future here. You okay. get to go back to your past, but you only get to tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by yourself. When are you going back? And what message are you delivering back to that younger version of yourself? First thing that popped in my head, I'm going back to 2009 and I'm telling myself to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> we've made that we've made that answer illegal it's too ob- okay yeah it's too right. obvious it's like man we all yeah, no joke. <laughs> yeah um hmm there's something you needed to hear that maybe you heard i would, I would say I, I would i would say this drew um don't ever believe that it's too late hmm. don't ever think that you've missed the opportunity that you've missed the boat i know a lot of people who have had an idea and they didn't act, they didn't act, they didn't act because maybe they didn't have the money, maybe they didn't have just the resources. And so they just let it die. And then they, you know, it might come back to them and think, well, it's too late now. But if it's truly a good idea, I know there's so much focus and attention on first mover, on being first, right? Being the first one. But um, I just kind of take a different approach. I, I just, I just believe that if it's a good idea and it's meant to be, then it's going to, it's going to work. And so I would tell myself, don't miss the opportunities because you think you're just, you think you're too late. So good. Keep so good. Forward. That's awesome. Well, Justin, man, this has been deeply soul satisfying as well as stimulating mentally good. for me. Uh, so man, thank you for being here today. Thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom and your heart. It's been truly valuable to us. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the time. Look forward to the next time. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.